Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodaychicago.com. Uh, in which we're looking at, like, what are the raw ingredients that kind of help us experience joy? Um, the first two weeks, definitely encourage you to go back and listen to them. We talked about uh, the, the, the things that steal our joy, um, uh, things like discontentment and comparison. Comparison is the thief of all joy. Uh, we looked at, like, neglecting the source of joy. Uh, we looked at, in that week, we looked at, like, loss of vision um, sometimes steals our joy when we have a loss of purpose or feel stuck. Um, and then this past week, we looked at uh, one of the first building blocks of joy is just building a foundation of gratitude. Uh, foundation of gratitude, and to do that, we have to be aware of God's presence. We have to be aware of his good gifts around us. Uh, so this week, we're beginning to start talking about some of the other building blocks that we can actually control and do. Um, and one of those things that... that research shows, but it's all pointing back to stuff scripture has been saying a long time ago is, is giving, giving away things, right? And so today we're going to talk about money. Again, we just talked about money coincidentally, but um, we had the series planned, but also didn't realize we're going to do our big announcement this week on, on our campaign, so it all just fits together. Um, but money, when you think about money, uh, let's do a little class participation. What emotions come to mind when you hear the word money, just in hearing that? Stress, yes. Gratification, greed, yeah. Fear, jealousy, all right. Uncertainty and more stress. I'm loving the honesty here. What, what else? Comfort. Uh, and then how many of you uh, have thought about money within the last, like, 72 hours? Besides this announcement that we made. All right, everybody. Okay, when you were thinking about money... What were you thinking about? Like, what were you thinking about doing? Budgeting. Picking more? Baking? Baking? Making more. Yes. Not baking. I was like, yes, Martha Stewart. Baking more. Absolutely. What else? If you could be raw, honest, what were you thinking about? Is there enough? What else? Somebody say fighting about money? What else? That's, you're like, yeah, don't tell my wife, but yes. What else? What else were you doing when you were thinking about money? Thinking about buying something? Yeah. Um, Somebody's like sinking into a hole of depression. That's probably some of you, some of us. Um, So what, what we're doing with our money when we're doing those things is we are cultivating an imagination um, for our future. Uh, and so today I want to talk about, like, what does it look like for us to have a, fina- a, a reshaping of our financial imagination, right? Because uh, every one of those things that we just talked about was, in a sense, cultivating this imagination for money. And so Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. There's over 205 verses in the Bible about money and possessions, um, a lot of things we think about in church, like the word prayer or the word uh, love, those occur like in somewhere in the scripture count, like around the, the 800s. The word give is like in the 2000s throughout the scripture. And so Jesus talked about money and possessions more than any other topic. And so if we're following, if we're here as a church, we talk about we're here to try to figure out how to follow the way of Jesus. We have to ask the question, how do we follow the way with Jesus as a whole person? And if we are a whole person, we have to ask the question, how do we follow the way of Jesus in regards to our money and possessions? 
And so uh, one third of our time, if you think about it, is used to, with income producing jobs. Like a, a third of all of our times we're producing income, but we have to ask, how do we choose to manage those earnings and how does that really determine if we are free to serve the greater good? Um, and when we talk about money, there's a lot of things we could go towards this sermon. We could talk about systemic issues of really bad lending practices or redlining and a lot of injustice systems. But today I just want to talk about personal values, personal beliefs, personal financial imagination. I love this quote by Lisa and Mark Scandretti. It says, we live in one of the wealthiest economies on earth, yet many of us feel crunched on time, stressed in our finances, perplexed about what makes life meaningful. Our culture is driven by a sense of scarcity Fear and unquenchable quests for more. Next slide. It says that if we don't make conscious choices to resist these impulses, the force of a materialistic and consumeristic society will make most of our decisions for us. The scripts we've inherited about material prosperity are wearing us out, robbing our joy and destroying our planet. I deeply resonate with that. And one of my favorite authors, Edmund Friedman, he's a family systems therapist, um, he says that that uh, basically, whenever we feel stuck in life, um, whenever we feel stuck and we don't know how to move forward, it's all rooted in anxiety. Um, the core is anxiety. What people feel like the problem is, is it's, it's anxiety and, and it's the inability to imagine other possibilities when we're currently stuck. And the cause of stuckness every time is this fear and anxiety and it's, and it's a lack of imagination. What he says is, is when a person is stuck, listen to this, thinking... What you need to do is, is, is like, thinking cannot unstuck you. <laughs> Whenever we are stuck in life, more thinking about how to get unstuck cannot get you unstuck. All right? So he says what you need is you have to have play and adventure, and you need to risk, you need to encounter, you need creativity. And what happens when you, that dislodges the stuckness when we play and adventure and risk, and this is how new imagination is born. Um, listen to this definition of Walter Brueggemann on imagination. It says, imagination is the human capacity to picture, portray, receive, and practice the world in ways other than it appears at first glance. So let's picture and portray things in a way that doesn't appear at first glance when seen through a dominant, habitual, unexamined lens. And I believe we need to examine the lenses we view finances through today. And I hope we can be playful about it and adventurous about it. Um, but the ways we get stuck often are like crippled by debt, right? Um, we get stuck by our time and our workload. And so I feel like many, many of us, my, my prayer today is that many of us are in an imaginative gridlock, is what Freeman says, that we have an imaginative gridlock, and especially in regards to money today, my prayer is that we would be set free this morning. Amen? That we'd be set free in our imaginations and then free by the Spirit of God in our gridlock and, and, and really just, just bondage and, and just stressed and stuckness today in regards to money, that God would set many of us free, uh, that he would start that process today and set many of you free today in the name of Jesus. And so um, our God, as we imagine, is a triune God, a God of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is in a continuous deferring generosity dance with each other. And in the threeness of this triune God, at the core of their hearts is generosity. And when Jesus the Son dies on the cross, he raises again from the dead and he invites us into this dance of givenness. 
into this beautiful dance of giving ourselves away, of deferring to one another, into giving and generosity, and at the core of who God is, is a generous God. And so today we're just invited to, to look more like him and imagine what it would be like to look like him. Amen? So as we do that, can we just pray? And we're going to dive in, all right? Uh, God, I pray that you would um, just free us from um, anxiety of talking about money. I know that this is something that um, makes us nervous, especially when someone of power like me um, gets up to speak, someone who has influence as a pastor about money. Um, God, we, we, we pray that you would um, let us trust you, uh, first and foremost, that we would examine uh, our own imaginative gridlock, that we would examine our stuckness in thinking about money. Um, God, would your spirit uh, empower me and give me words to say? Um, there's nothing I can say to really um, change us here, God. We, I don't have the power and strength to do that, but according to your power, God, and according to your word, God, give us selflessness and humility that the only the triune God can accomplish something in us above and beyond our imagination. Um, God, I pray that we would uh, see that you so loved the world you gave. You called us into a life of givenness, and we all relish when others are generous with us. <laughs> Who doesn't like a, uh, a generous hug from a child or a generous serving of food <laughs> from a restaurant, God? You love, we love it when people are generous with us, and, and it shows something about the way we were made in your image, that there's something in all of us that just gets joyful about generosity. And so, God, would you make us uh, into your image and set us free so we could pursue more freedom? And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So before we get into the imagination of, of, of that, we need to first take a look at uh, some of the, the Jesus' words, Scripture's words on money. Um, and we need to look at uh, some things that Scripture says. So first of all, we're going to be rooted in Hebrews 13 today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, and Hebrews 13 says, keep yourself from the love of money. Keep yourself from the love of money, is the first thing that Hebrews says. And be content with whatever you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Um, so I just want to break this down verse by verse today and um, just be rooted in this. Uh, first of all, is, is, is he says, keep yourself free from the love of money. Now, he doesn't say money. Uh, he says, from the, the love of money. And so um, we're going to look at that, uh, what that means. There's many people in my life that I've known that are, that are rich um, and, and, and very, like, people of character and integrity and, and people who uh, handle that well. I know other people who are wealthy that are just, the, the, just jerks, just, like, you know, prideful and greedy and, and out to manipulate and control. I know poor people um, who are just the heart of gold. Um, who would give their shirt off the back to anyone else. And I know other poor people who are, are also um, out for themselves and out for greed. So what I'm trying to get at is there's no combination. You need to remove any kind of box in your head of spirituality and money and people who have it and who don't. There's no perfect equation. There's no sense formula. Um, but the reality is, is the love of money, the, the desire for the, to gain status or things from God, like significance, these things, we're going to look at them, is what he's getting at here. Um, not to keep your life free from money, this is not a glorification of poverty, but the love of money. So when you love something or someone, you begin to make sacrifices for them. When you love something or someone, you make sacrifices for that thing. When something continues to beckon you, you become owned by that. And the writer of Hebrews, off uh, the words of Jesus, Matthew 6, next slide, it says, no one 
can serve two masters, Jesus said. So you can't serve one master here and one person over here. You're going to be going in two different directions. You can't go east and also go west at the same time, right? Because if you're serving two masters, it's impossible. You're going to be set in one direction or the other. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body and what you will wear. Now, um, in many of your translations, that word mammon is like a capital M, money. Um, This is an Aramaic word that Jesus used here twice and in Luke three times. And it's very important because um, Jesus significantly, specifically uses a word that's not money, um, but that was often translated money. So we don't know how to translate this word, so it's called a transliteration. Basically what we did is we took the Greek word monos, and just kept it the way it is and put it in here because the English does not have a word for this. Um, this word mammon is, was a god of, uh, god of riches back in Syria in ancient Babylon. Um, it actually came from the Babylonians, this like god of riches that they would worship. Um, and uh, it's interesting, Babylon means confusion. And I think for a lot of us, that's the way we feel about money. A lot of us are just confused about it. <laughs> Um, and so I think uh, it, it, this, this sense that what Jesus is saying, you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is, and let me explain what mammon is. Um, I love Peter Kreft's definition. He says, mammon, listen here, is the inordinate desire to possess wealth, goods, or objects of extract value with the intention to keep it for oneself far beyond the dictates of basic survival and comfort. It is applied to a markedly high desire for a pursuit of wealth, status, and power. Mammon is similarly an inordinate desire to acquire more than one needs. It is natural for man to desire external things as means, but mammon makes them into ends, into gods. Mammon is a power that seeks to dominate us. So the difference between mammon and money is another way to think about it. Let's backtrack back to money. I love Lynn Twist's book on uh, the soul of money. She says, money is like water. I love this. This is great. Just listen to it. Money flows through all of our lives, sometimes like a rushing river, sometimes like a trickle. Someone said, yes, Lord, help me. Um, when it is flowing, it can purify, cleanse, and create growth and nourish. But when it is blocked or held too long, it can grow stagnant and toxic to those withholding it or hoarding it. Like water, money is a carrier. This is huge. It can be a current of currency of love or a conduit in a conduit for commitment. So what Jesus is saying is money has a, if you will, a spirit on it. And it can either have the spirit of the enemy on it or a spirit of God on it. All right, you catching this? It can have the spirit of God on it or it can have the spirit of the enemy on it, which is mammon. And this all goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. What did the serpent say to Adam and Eve? Of course, they didn't have currency yet. But he said, is God holding out on you, right? Remember, remember this, the enemy's temptation to Eve was like, God is holding out on you. you. You should have more, and he's not giving you enough. So Satan, back at the very beginning, one of the first temptations was, your God is withholding from you. He's withholding from you. Very first temptation. That is the spirit of mammon. That this idea that, 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 that there's, um, I must... Um, worship this thing because I'm being withheld from. So I think we all have my story of confusion around money. Um, I think we all have different stories, and I, and I would encourage you to explore early on, just homework assignment. Um, every one of us has an emotional story with money. Um, so I would encourage you. I got some exercises I'm not, I don't have with me, but if you want them, I'll email them to you. One of them is just exploring your emotional connection with money, going back to your childhood.
neighborhood thinking through that. For me, uh, we were a middle-class family. Um, my dad was self-employed. We dug holes for a living, so I would dig holes and make money with him. And we did percolation tests and designed field lines, all real weird, you know, geology stuff. Um, but it, we were middle, my mom was a teacher, a uh, special ed teacher, uh, taught, mo taught moderate to severe um, people with, like, head injuries and things of that nature. Um, so we felt middle class, but then for some reason um, we always felt also poor at the same time. So I remember, like, going with my mom, and, like, she's like, I don't have enough money. We'd go through Taco Bell drive through and I'm like, okay, mom, it's okay. I'll, you can use my money. I'll buy your food. Um, and so what it realized till later on is that, um, money was just a huge, was, was, there was a spirit of mammon for sure within my house from my dad, sense of control of money, um, sense of needing money for security and significance, um, not in sense of like of purchasing, but of saving. And so um, there was a sense that it was very confusing for me because we had it, but we didn't have anything to buy, enough to buy things with. And so it really led to a lot of confusion. Uh, and so... Uh, I think it's very important that what mammon is, as the next slide, is that is it's, it's, the attack, it's derived from this, amon. Go back one more. You can stay there. The one you had about trust. Yes, that in which we trust. That's where it derives its meaning from. So when we put our trust in money, it is, has a spirit of the enemy on it. Um, next slide. Um, thank you very much. Yes, mammon, so money, mammon equals money plus attachments. Is this making sense for anybody here? You guys, is this helpful? Um, so we have these that we place on money, and, and, and for Jesus, mammon wasn't just one idol among equals. He signaled it out as a direct competition to God. So once we allow money to have lordship over our lives, it becomes money with a capital M, a God that jealousy defaults. So Jesus makes mammon a, the primary competitor to the kingdom of God. you got to get this. The primary competitor. Jesus deals with all kinds of challenges, but mammon is a big deal. He wants you to keep your lives free from the disordered attachment to look to money where God is only faithful to do for you. Right? So there's three lies. There's tons of lies about money, but I'm just going to give you three. Um, so the lies that the enemy will give us about money, number one, is we think money will make us secure. That, that, that I remember even Steve Jobs, he said at the end of his life after he got cancer, um, if I, could, I really thought if I had enough money, nothing could touch me. And he said, I wish I would have put my trust in something other than money. Um, so it's okay to have money. It's not okay if money has you, right? It's okay to have money. It's not okay for money to have you. Um, Proverbs, listen to this. Oh, this is so key. The wealth of the rich, Proverbs 18, is their fortified city. So let me get, show you this. Keyword there. The wealth of the rich, it's their fortified city. So their, their fortified city is not God. We want to be fortified as human beings. God made us that way. But God is meant to be our fortress, right? Mighty fortress is our God. And so uh, the proverb says that those who, the wealth of the rich, their fortified city, they, what did I say? Imagine, right? It all starts in the imagination. It is a wall too high to scale. So they think that their riches fortifies them, and it's a wall too high to, to scale. But the truth is, is money cannot protect us. It cannot protect us from cancer. It cannot protect us from suffering. It cannot protect us from loss or broken relationships. It cannot affect us from the curses of this world that we experience on a daily basis. Only God can protect us from the attack of the enemy. God can protect us from the curses of this world. It's an amen. 
So, so when we uh, put our security in a future that is falsified, it is, we believe this lie about security. Second thing is we think money will make us significant, right? There's another exercise I have that I'll show you which one of these that you put your trust in if you want it. Email me, I'll give it to you. Thought about doing it right here now, but we're not. Um, but we think money will make us significant. So, right, like if I put this on, this is going to feel better. I'm going to feel better and other people are going to think better about me. If I have this awesome thing, you know, this is going to give me significance, right? Um, I thought about this. Uh, I don't know if you have the Pinterest board up there. This is like curating our imagination constantly online, right? Our financial imagination is constantly being shaped, right? Just look at all the things you can do right here. Show the internet for the life you wish you had to help you know that your furniture is crappy and you need something else. Um, I mean, imagine doing a wedding in the age of Pinterest. My goodness, what stress. I'm sorry for those that are getting married this year. Um, oh, man, Pinterest has ruined your life. I'm just kidding. Blessings to you. Um, but this is straight up, straight up imagination formation. Think about the Instagram ads. Did you know that people say that we see more ads today than 50 years ago someone would see in their entire lifetime? We see more ads today in, in, in one week, that's what's the quote, in one week than someone from 50 years ago would see in their entire lifetime. So what does this do to our contentment level? It's absolutely imagination formation about your life. Jesus said, be aware against every kind of life is not measured by how much you own. And so I think we believe the lie that money will make us happy. We believe the lie that, that's the third one, money will make you happy. Um, and then we are in the middle of the joy series. I wanted to really kick us off with this, but... Um, the thing is, is uh, next slide. So if you, some research has been done um, that they researched people and they said, hey, if you made $25,000, how much do you think you need to be happy? What do you guys think it is? I think I did this a couple of months ago. 50, 50K. If I had 50K, I'd be happy. So then you would think the people that made 50K would be happy, right? No, they're not happy. So let's just double that down. What if you make 100K? They interviewed people and said, hey, if you had 100, for those that, no, I think there were real people that made 100K. What do you need to be happy if you make 100K? What do you think it is? 250K. So not, check this out. Not only is it just getting, it's not just a trickle incremental like equality. It's a huge scale of which, which once we have more, the more anxiety we have about protecting what we have, and once we have more, the more we need to perceive happiness. So having more of a higher salary or more money doesn't make us happy. Research actually shows around 70K in the United States. I don't know now, I don't know where these people were living in Chicago or what, but they said 70K is about what you need to be happy. Um, that like in, in America, anything over that doesn't change your happiness at all, at all. So, so that, just, just so you know that. Um, so, tell your boss, 70K. All right, so, um, and if you make more than that, just give it away and live on 70K. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, uh, next slide. Um, the, the, this, back to that uh, ha uh, thing of happiness. So, what does result in our happiness show is, is giving away, right? Researchers, uh, Chicago Business School took people off the L, and they gave them people $5 and $20, and they said, hey, uh, we want you to uh, either spend something on yourself or give this money away, uh, buy something, give them away by the end of the day. So they, they said, how happy are you now getting off the train? A scale of one to 10, they told them. And then they called them the ne that night and said, hey, what did you do with the money? And they told them, and then they said, how happy are you? What they found is uh, those who gave the money away 
were more happy than those that spent it on themselves. And they actually asked them before the project and said, which one do you think is going to result in you more happiness? They all said, buying something for myself. But then studies show that getting something for themselves didn't result in more happiness. Giving something away did. Um, so I think this is something that God's put in all of us, right? Every single one of us, that we love, right, generosity. We love to experience it. We love to do it, right? I mean, who doesn't love, like, going to Chipotle and just saying, more rice, please, more, guac- more guacamole, and I'm just kidding. But, you know, just pile it on. Who doesn't want a hug and a kiss from a child that doesn't let go, right? Who doesn't want to experience, like, a, a generous a uh, generous amount of, we, we see these stories, right? You see YouTube videos, people just displaying generosity. It just moves our hearts. Um, and so what do we do then? What do we do to combat these lies? Because our mind is lying to us all the time about what makes us happy. And, w- and we don't forecast that generosity is the thing. But the reality is, is increase in happiness. If you give money away that more than what you spend it, we will be more happy. So we need to think about all the scripts. Again, formative imagination. Think about all the scripts we believe about money. You deserve better, right? You deserve better. You, d- you satisfy your cravings. More is always better, right? These are all the scripts we hear. The kind of work you do determines your worth. Be generous with yourself first, then be generous with leftovers. The scarcity mindset. Then there's church scripts. If you have money, you did something right. If you don't have money, you probably did something wrong or you didn't have enough faith. These are all get in our heads. Resources are scarce, so take as much as you can. Um, The summary of all these scripts is a basic equation. It's whatever the thing is plus more. Just that's the solution, plus more, plus more. And we even have financial language around this. But what does this script produce? Um, I don't know about you, but it turns our insides raw. Right? It churns our insides raw on the inside, and, and it, it, the fruit of these is always anxiety and worry. Always anxiety and worry. Every time. That's the fruit it produces. So if you want a better story, script, right? If we want a better story, we need a better imagination. Scripture says, um, I'm sorry, uh, out on me, yeah. Do I need to break this out? G.K. Chesterton said, there's two ways to have enough money. One is to acquire more, (laughs) and the other is to desire less. Let that sink in. One is to acquire more, and the other is to desire less. So we need a better script. Next slide. The script of mammon. What's the purpose of life? Pleasure. What's wrong with the world? Lack. What's the solution? More. And what's the end result? Luxury and success. Well, what's the script of God? What's the purpose of life? Life with God. Union with God. What's wrong with the world? Sin. What's the solution? Jesus. What's the end result? All things new. And so what's the the secret to contentment? Back to Hebrews. The secret of contentment is something that God has said. It's a promise. Check this out. Be content with what you have. Now, next slide with the yellow in the bold. Never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. That's the secret of contentment. It's not that we get our attachments to, to money, but that God is attached to us. That's the secret of contentment. That God is attached to you. That he says, I ain't going nowhere. That's the Greek for Hebrew in Hebrews. 
right there. I ain't going nowhere. I am the all-sufficient, all-powerful, mighty God who knows no end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I hold all things together, and I ain't going nowhere. I am with you, and I am attached to you. This is the power to be free from mammon. To be free from mammon is to know that God is so attached to you that you do not need to be any other attachments, especially to money. So the key question is, is I'm attached to you. That can be a nice plaque on grandma's wall, or it can be the operating system of your heart. And that's a big difference. But if this is the operating system of your heart, you, I guarantee you, you will be free from the love and the tyranny of the anxiety of money. This is who we are. Um, next slide. So if, if, if God will never leave us or forsake us, Psalms 145, go to the next slide. We ain't got time for all that amazing scripture right now. I'm just kidding. We can go back to it. Now I feel bad, but I'm trying to honor your time. Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Listen, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So the psalmist reshaped their imagination to one of God owning everything. So who are we? What kind of world do we live in? Is it one of scarcity or abundance? And what kind of God do we have? The psalmist one eager to provide. Eager to provide. And because of this abundance of God, we're recipients. It's what we are. There we go. Whoa. Everybody woke up. We're recipients. Who, we all want to bring something into this world, right? And so um, I got some inspiration from this guy named Tom uh, Tom Waits. He's a musician. Um, does anybody know who Tom Waits is? Yeah, basically, imagine Cookie Monster singing poetry, and you got Tom Waits, all right? <laughs> um, and Tom Waits has been interviewed by Elizabeth Gilbert and many others, and about his, he, he, he's, he's confessed his struggle and anxiety about creating songs and the creative process. Um, and he says, some, some songs don't want to be born, is what he says. He says, sometimes songs are, are some songs he learns don't want to be born. He says, you can wrestle with them or you'll only scare them off more. Trying to capture them sometimes is trying to trap birds, he says. He says, fortunately, he says, other songs come easy, like digging potatoes out of the ground. Others are sticky and weird, like gum found under an old table. Clumsy and uncooperative songs may only be useful to cut up as bait and use them to catch other songs, he says. Of course, the best songs are all those that enter you like dreams taken through a straw. In those moments, all you can be, Waite says, is grateful. And so he said he would get in the recording studio, and sometimes he just couldn't get a song, and he would tell all of his band to leave. And so he says, some good songs only come out by interrogation and commanding. So he said, song, we are here. The band is on the, the band is here. The family is on the bus, and you better come out right now. We ain't got time for this. And he would start interrogating the song. He said, sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. But, but wait, what Waits was learning was that he had so much anxiety over these song creations, so much overworking and squelching his own creativity, this artistic suffering of torment. And he said that he learned how to write songs from his children. His children, he says, make the, the best songs. 
This is better than grown-ups. Kids are always working on songs and then throwing them away, like paper airplanes or, or origami. And they always trust that after they, that another song's going to come, and another song's going to come. They don't care if they lose it. They'll just make up another song. It doesn't matter. And so he said, like, sometimes he'll be driving down the road and a song idea will come. He says, you better come back if you really mean it later when I'm in my studio. Right now I'm driving. Go bother someone else like Leonard Cohen. So he just learned to, like, talk to these ideas and be like, you're messing with me. This is not the right time. But I love this. He said he misnamed his creative suffering. He called it dedication. Let me say that again. He misnamed his suffering. He called it dedication. You see, we're all trying to bring something into this world, right? And you, he watched these kids. They lived in a world of abundance. So what, how, do, how do we like, get to contribute in this world? It's knowing that our world is one of abundance. It's one of abundance, that we live in a world of abundance. What is getting in the way of us contributing? It's fear. It's fear that we are not enough. And that we will not have enough. How do I get into sharing in abundance? It's trust. And then what's the outcome? It's creativity and freedom for all of us. And then what's the hardest thing to spot for all of us in this? It's the same thing as Tom Waits. He misnamed his suffering as dedication. I think for a lot of us in this, we've misnamed some things in regards to money. We've misnamed... um, Worry as being a good financial steward and saving, right? When it's really anxiety. Not saying that w- saving's not bad, but it's bad, but we've misnamed anxiety as financial stewardship. We've misnamed overworking as responsible, right? We've misnamed overspending as having a passion. So we can say with confidence a new script. Next slide. The Lord. We say with confidence a new script, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Come on, church, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so if God is for us, we are free. We are set free to risk. We are set free to play. And we are set free to have a new financial imagination, knowing that God is going to provide. God is going to continue to bring increase. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He has a triune God of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, doing a dance of givenness that he wants to bring us into the dance. That's good news. And so what's the implications? I just want to give you some practical steps. Number one, name your anxiety. Name your anxiety. I'm going to go through these fast. Name your anxiety about, put a name to it. Um, explore your emotional story with money. Uh, name the lies you've been taught to believe. Name the lies that you've been taught. Explore your, your disordered attachments that you're putting your confidence in. And then I want to encourage you to just start practicing statements of trust with God in your prayer time. Take the worry and turn it into a statement of trust. So if you're worried about getting a new job, anybody, yes and amen? Say, I trust you will give me the work and the income I need, Jesus. If you're worried that you're not going to have enough in old age, say, God, I trust that you will provide for me in the time to come, and tomorrow will worry about itself. And then, and then we need to practice counterformations. So we need to be people of practice. This is a very, uh, if we're going to have joy, we have to practice things. One thing we practice, a counterformation is the generosity creed, Right? 
we remind ourselves of that script every single week. Remember, I love it when our like screen messes up or someone forgets to put it. We just all know it by heart. This is the best. And it's like God is generous. Everything is a gift. And we, we say that. That's forming us, church. That creed is forming us. Start your day dwelling in Hebrews 13, 5, 6. Be in a gospel community. We're going to start talking about finances in a couple of weeks on one of those weeks. But be in a gospel community, sharing, sharing your need. Some of you just need to share your need um, and risk embarrassment of how you're doing financially. And like, man, I, I've had several people in our gospel community share their need of how they're doing, and God is finding them so much freedom. So much freedom in community, helping them, freedom in them getting the right advocates, freedom in them getting free from the bondage of debt. Share your need. We are a church that wants to meet your needs. No needy among us, yes and amen. Share your stories of God's provision. Each week, for the next several weeks, we're going to be sharing stories of God's provision. We need your story of God's provision and abundance. If you have one, share it with Phil. (laughs) He'll help you get set up. So, just want to end, how do we resist mammon? How do we begin to, let me give you just big three stuff that you probably know, but it's just very important. As I mentioned from the beginning of our church, we set set a desire to give 10% of all we get to missions. We want to do more for others. And I would say throughout my time of church, there's like two testimonies, essentially. Um, One is one of tithers who say, because I tithe, I am blessed. Any tithers can say to that. I didn't coach that person, but yes. Then there's people that say, I can't afford enough to give. I can't afford enough to give. And I would say to you that you'll never afford be able to afford enough to give, ever. And that if you don't start now, you never will be able to. And so one thing I would just say to resist mammon, number one, is we got to begin to return the first. Return the first of what we have. Do it right now. Tithing, think about this. Right now, you are tithing your week. You are tithing your week. Right now, Sunday, the very first day of the week, you're giving it to God. The beginning of the year, we're going to do 21 days of prayer and fasting. We're going to tithe our year and say we're committing it to God. Our time is to you. 21 days of prayer and fasting. And so with all things, not just money, we give our first to God. Now, Um, If you don't believe me, look at Malachi 3. It says this. It says, next slide. Um, On the first, oh, well, one more slide. So on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. I love this. This is Paul talking to the church. He's like, you wouldn't have to do a Christmas offering if you, each one of you, <laughs> set aside some of your money in keeping with your income. So he's saying, like, you know, set this aside. Set this. Keeping with your income. This is huge. It means proportionately. So everybody should be giving something different. And I would just say, don't worry so much about what you should give all that. I would say, give until it feels good. Because we're in a series of joy. Give until you know this gift feels good. And, and that, that rule has always worked for me. It has always worked for me. Um, but we return our first. We return a tithe. Next slide. Um, scripture does say that we are first and foremost to give 10%. Um, so s- return the first, steward the rest. And Malachi 3 says this on the next slide. It should be up there. I, the Lord, do not change. All right, so this is Old Testament. He's like, there's some things that change. Sacrificial system, you know, worshiping by 
killing animals, that stuff changes. The principle's there. I'm a God who desires sacrifice, but I do not change. The, print, the, the, the way it practices change, but I do not change. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. And you say, but you ask, how are we to return to you? Will a mere mortal rob God? That's misprint. Not bod. This is not a cult. We are not here worshiping bod. That's a priest. That's a little teaser for our next series, the God bod. I'm just kidding. Yet you rob me. That's probably been done before, that cheesy title. But you ask, who are we, rob- uh, who are we robbing? Who's robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Next slide. Bring the whole tithe, that's 10%, into the storehouse. That was the storehouse of the temple. That there may be food in my house. He says, test me in this. And I just wanted to point this out. This is the only time in Scripture that God says, test me. And not in like a test me, like interrogating way, but test me because you doubt this will happen. He's saying, test me because there's doubts, and I want, you to sh- I want to prove myself faithful, God says. And if you do this, the floodgates of heaven are going to pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room for you to store it. And so God says, return the first, be good stewards of the rest, and then lastly, the band can come up, focus on true riches. Focus on true riches. Luke 12 says this. Next slide. And Jesus was telling him this parable, right? And he says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You've had plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. He didn't say to him, you fool, because he had a lot of money. He said, you fool, because he didn't know what to do with the excess. He says, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. That's people following Jesus is knowing true riches as people coming to follow Jesus, being enfolded into the kingdom, that we focus on the riches of heaven. Could we stand together as we pray? I just want to invite you.